have your Bible with you this morning, please turn to the 12th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 12. This is the fourth of six controversy scenes we talked about in the temple, all of which highlight the authority of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of Man and the Son of God, increasing the opposition to Him, setting the stage very deliberately for His death as the Son of God, as this Son of Man and Messiah of Israel. Jesus has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, that means it is Jesus Christ who dictates what truth is. He makes the exclusive claim, in fact, to possessing all truth, meaning that truth and understanding truth is found ultimately only in Jesus Christ. That is one of the reasons, at least that Mark is highlighting here, that Jesus is so violently rejected. It's it's not just anyone telling us that we're wrong, that we're sinners, that we're liars, that we're dead spiritually, we're stillborn in trespasses and sins spiritually. It's the one who has all authority and therefore the authority to determine, to declare the destiny of our souls to whom we must give an account that is telling us these things about himself. And in our fallenness, we have decided to compete with God, not only for what truth is, but how we might arrive at and or determine it. That's exemplified in the Gospels by the religious leaders of Israel, ironically. Those you think would be on Jesus' side. Their duplicity that has made them hypocrites at their core is front and center in the ministry of Jesus. So it's very interesting that the people that would seem to know the most, know the least, are able to grasp the least amount of truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. This means in Jesus is the sum of all truth, of everything that is true. All things, all things, finally find their meaning, their explanation, their reconciliation in Him and in Him alone. So there is a way out there to know what is true. And it is to receive what God has said in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we start with ourselves in trying to find the truth and what we think or feel as the means of determining what is true, our pursuit of truth will always be tainted by our own personal agendas, by our own desires. It's always good to ask questions. Yes, it's always good to be diligent about pursuing truth. But we must recognize this about ourselves As we continue to search for truth, some of the questions we're asking allegedly to discover the truth are actually set up so that we can deny the truth. What we want to be true, beloved, determines how we search for it and what we say is true. Rather than accepting the truth of God that is given to us in his word through his son and asking for the grace, the divine illumination to be able to believe it. Instead, we create our own goalposts and we keep moving them until we find enough of a reason in ourselves to believe what we want to believe. Until we believe the scriptures and submit to the irrevocable power of the God they reveal in Jesus Christ, we can never know the truth. And we won't just lose our minds. We'll lose our souls. Let's pray and then we'll look at the text. Father, I beg you for your intervention for me this morning. I beg you for the filling of your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching this passage. Lord, please overshadow me and come and be with me and hold me up. Hold up my voice, my delivery, my content, please, Father. And please watch over every heart of every person in this room that every single one, regardless of age, might be able to understand your word. And understand what it means. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read verses 18 and 19 of Mark 12 to begin here. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. After Jesus foils the Pharisees and Herodians' attempt to trap him in his words about paying taxes to Caesar that we looked at last week, the Sanhedrin, the ruling 
council of religious leaders in Israel, housed in Jerusalem, sends their second volley after Jesus, or their another volley. This is actually, a lot of people don't know this, they send the first mafia family in the Bible, the Sadducees. So, they're after Jesus. They come with a question about the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. This is also, by the way, a major point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not even the religious rulers agreed with themselves here in the first century. This is the first and only appearance of the Sadducees in Mark. Jesus technically had much more in common, technically speaking, theologically with the Pharisees than he would have with the Sadducees because the Sadducees denied the authority of all Scripture. Uh, as well, or of all Old Testament scripture, as well as denied the doctrine of the resurrection. And the resurrection was not a major doctrine that was taught in the Old Testament, but it is there. Daniel 12, 1 and 2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting punishment or contempt. Also, resurrection is strongly alluded to in Job 19, 26, Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Isaiah 25, 7 to 8, Isaiah 26, 19, Hosea 13, 14. In other words, it is there, even though it's not at the forefront. Until or when literature was written during the second temple era, the second temple that was built, that literature brings the resurrection much more to the forefront. So most of the Jewish people in the days of Jesus did believe in the resurrection of the dead. You heard uh, Martha reference it uh, when Lazarus dies. I know that he will be raised up, right? So it was there. They believed it, most of them. The Sadducees, however, they rejected it. By the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's, it's, this was never given by God to Israel. That was not his idea that this Sanhedrin or this council rise up, nor was the synagogue. They showed up in about the second century BC. Both groups are opposed to Jesus, and that's about all they agreed on. The Pharisees stressed as a matter of doctrine, the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men and history. The Sadducees did not believe history was determined by a sovereign God, but ultimately by the will of human beings. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees categorically denied the existence of both, or at least in the way in which those two things were understood in Jewish thought. But the main dispute between the Pharisees and Sadducees had to do with the canon of Scripture. What was Scripture? What was authoritative? What was divine? What was actually breathed out by God? The Pharisees believed that the Scripture, what was God-breathed, what was authoritative, was the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, as many of you know. The prophets, the writings, the wisdom literature, all of it was authoritative, inspired, divine Scripture. The Sadducees, and these are always in Christianity, the Sadducees believed, or they had a much smaller view of what was divine scripture. They only recognized the first five books of the Bible as the actual word of God, only the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's anything beyond Deuteronomy then was worthless in forming doctrine. You couldn't rely on it. You didn't know it came from God. That's why they differed on the resurrection, the doctrine that um, states the souls of people live on after death. And when God brings uh, an end to all things, He will raise the bodies of all human beings from the grave. He will reunite them with their souls. Some, those who have believed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be raised to eternal life. The rest, those who have rejected Jesus, He will raise up for eternal condemnation. Since the Sadducees saw no teaching on the resurrection as they understood it in the Torah, the first five books, they denied the doctrine of the resurrection. So that's how we got here. The goal of the Pharisees and the Herodians in the last passage last week with Caesar was to trap Jesus. The Sadducees have their own agenda. They want to humiliate and therefore discredit this new leader among the people by showing that he also believes in this illogical, absurd doctrine about resurrection. So their question is in 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. The question uh, revolves around the Leveret law that God gave to Israel designed to provide descendants for a man who died without children uh, so that the family line could be maintained and his property, which is all laid out in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6. This is what it says. This is what the Pharisees are referencing. If, a, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife. I hope he wasn't ugly, right? And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may be may not be blotted out of Israel. It's very straightforward. If a man's brother dies, uh, that man is to marry his wife so that if he dies without children, so that his family line, his inheritance is not in any kind of jeopardy. But since the Sadducees deny the resurrection, they've created what actually might have been an ongoing parable or tool that they used in argumentation uh, from the biblical texts that they do agree with, Deuteronomy 25, to undo the texts that the Pharisees might reference from other parts of the Bible to reference the resurrection. This is very common to use Scripture against Scripture to maintain one's own belief. Believe it or not, people do this all the time. We probably do it. That Scripture can't be true because of this Scripture. As though it's contradictory. As though the Bible is teaching two categorically different things. But God does not, cannot deny himself. And if scripture is breathed out by God, it doesn't matter whether or not it looks like a contradiction to us. It isn't one. Our minds are very small compared to the author of this book. He does not contradict his own words. Scripture never disagrees with itself. That's not what is happening When we read things that seem to conflict in Scripture, it's not that God forgot what He said elsewhere and has now said something in complete contradiction, and therefore we don't know if the Bible's reliable or authoritative or not. You can't just cherry-pick the verses that seem to support our argument when there are texts that do seem to support another way of thinking. When that happens, when we realize those things are there, When we come across something in the Bible, we thought, I I didn't even know the Bible said that. And now everything else I believe is called into question, and I don't know if it's right, or what about this thing that I believe, this verse makes it seem like that's not true. When that happens, rather than doubting the authority and the power of God, we need to accept the fact that maybe we've built a doctrine by embracing only one side of the picture while ignoring or not knowing about the other. The Sadducees cannot deny in an outright way the resurrection. So they have this strategy to keep on denying it. The strategy is to create scenarios out of thin air that would show that if there's a resurrection, it creates way too many problems for what else is in the Bible, like the Leveret Law. And again, that's a very common way to argue in points of doctrine. Well, Yes, but of course, if that's true, then this isn't true. And if this isn't true, then this and this and this and this and this. And we're completely missing the fact that we're talking about the words God wrote, not people. Look at verses 20 to 23. Here's technically their question, their riddle, their scenario. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And they all start high-fiving each other. Burn. What are you going to do with this idea, right? And Jesus, of course, says, you know what, you're, you're right. There, there can't be a resurrection. God didn't think about a scenario where what if there are seven brothers and none of them are able to have children and then she dies. I guess I hadn't planned on that contingency. So what Scripture does seem to teach elsewhere or does teach elsewhere, just now because of that scenario that could possibly exist, it can't be true. Since the doctrine of resurrection leads to potentially and ridiculously complex marital situations in this alleged afterlife you all believe in, including polygamy, it simply can't be true. Now, when you hear that, what is the means in that line of argument to determine what is true? How are they determining what is true doctrine? Exclusively human reasoning. Held in check by human 
limitations. By asking whose wife she would be when they all were raised from the dead, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees are saying, look, the resurrection doctrine creates unsolvable problems, therefore it can't be true. Unsolvable problems for whom? They're trying to reduce the doctrine to absurdity to show that it's unbelievable. By the way, inadvertently, and this always happens when we very arrogantly come up with these scenarios. Well, I mean, if that's true, then blah, 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 blah. Do you know what we're doing? We're doing what they did here. They're creating a major problem for themselves. If God cannot overcome the problems created by extreme circumstances, then how powerful is he? Not very If God's doctrine of resurrection is trumped in the extreme case of seven sterile brothers and then the woman dies, if that means, well, there there can't be a resurrection, beloved, what are we doing here this morning? Who are we singing to? Why do we praise him? Why do we pray to him? What, What if what we're praying to him for is just way too big of a conundrum to solve? If, if, if what we want to be true is guiding our search for truth, it will never be an honest search. Not ever. And if we're to be honest and carry out many of the opinions and conclusions, and maybe even some of the doctrines that we hold dear, if we were to carry them out to the conclusions they actually demand, we'd quickly realize how poor our grasp of the truth might be. And often is that we might be denying God what he makes explicitly clear in one place because of what is said by him in another place. Arriving falsely or with our own agenda then at our conclusions, there's no scenario we can create that will undo the truth of what God has said because God holds all the cards and has all the power. Now. How does Jesus respond to this issue in the hearts of these religious leaders? Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? You know, the one part of the Bible you guys do agree with. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The response to the Pharisees and Herodians earlier was clever. It was even enigmatic. His response to the Sadducees, however, whose issue is that they don't know scripture and therefore they deny the power of God is explicit and corrective. They don't deny the resurrection because it isn't taught in the scripture. They deny the resurrection for two reasons. One, they don't know the scripture. And secondly, and even more importantly, they don't know the power of God. So first of all, beloved, Jesus says that that is how we know what is true. That's how we determine it. What is proper doctrine when it comes to that? What is taught in the scriptures In light of how powerful God is. The scripture cannot be understood properly until we're reading it cognizant of the fact that God has absolute omnipotent power. They can't be understood. They won't make sense. It's the power of God that makes scripture true. It is not our interpretations that makes scripture true, which means, beloved, when what is taught in the scripture seems impossible, seems too difficult or too heavy, or even by our terms, maybe contradictory, we then surrender our mind to the reality and extent of God's power, bow our knees to him and say, I don't understand this, but you are the truth. Help me understand. We're not excusing what appear to be contradictions. Once we study, we realize there aren't any contradictions, but we're not trying to get God off the hook for anything here. He doesn't owe us an explanation, right? We just have to settle this in our minds. He doesn't owe us an explanation. And really what, how much do we think we'd be capable of understanding? There's a huge debate right now over the Trinity in, in, you know, big evangelicalism about how does, how do the three persons of the Godhead relate to one another and It's like, gentlemen, 
Like, do we really think we can figure this out? And do you have one side saying they're not orthodox, they're heretical? And it's hold on a minute. The Trinity, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I can tell you how I think, you know, it, it, what we see. Is, I mean, we clearly see the Godhead in Scripture, but we also know there's one God. What we come to find out as we read Scripture is that, okay, He exists in three persons. They don't lack any essence, but they differ in function. But what does that mean about their divinity? Beloved, at, at some point, we're going to fall off the waterfall here of what we can understand. And so the proper response is to say, okay, this doctrine is there. It's true. I can understand it, but I'll submit to it. Right? That's the proper way to go with Scripture. It, it, two Christians can come to the Scriptures and find matters that they can interpret differently. Absolutely. I don't mean to try to take that away, that we have to be monolithic and see everything exactly the same. It doesn't work like that. There are matters we can agree to disagree on, but no person can come to the Scriptures and deny the power of the God who inspired and wrote this book through the hands of earthly men by His Holy Spirit. We can't conclude that because these scenarios or circumstances exist that seem to make it well, then that can't be the truth, that we do not have the right or the authority or the power to do, to make true. We, we can't shape truth the way we want it. Right? I use this example a lot, but you cannot believe in gravity if you want to. Gravity's going to win. If, if you say, I don't believe in gravity and I'm going to live my truth, you do it, man. You get up there in a plane and you live your truth. And then you tell us when you bounce off the ground in a hundred pieces, whether or not your truth was smart or dumb, right? It's just there are some things that are just true. And God is all of those things. All of those things. He's, he's not bound somehow by earthly scenarios, quandaries, extreme circumstances. And because of them, he cannot be what he says here because maybe of what it says there or because of the problem this particular truth might create for us and our ability to understand or accept it. And so a lot of times what we do is we, we ignore parts of the Bible so that we can maintain this picture of God that actually we've created in our image and that we don't mind worshiping because he's for us and on our side. And he is in the gospel but because we need to reconcile and weren't good and weren't right. God doesn't come to affirm us in our sin, but to save us in it. Because it's rebellion. It's quite an indictment to the religious leaders here to say to them, of all people, you don't know the Scriptures, right? They knew the Scriptures. The Sadducees did too. At least the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they knew those Scriptures very well. They probably knew the others so that they could argue. But apparently we find here Jesus' idea of knowing Scripture is very different from our idea of what it means to know Scripture. We think that we know something when we can recognize it, memorize it, cite it. Jesus says one doesn't know the Scriptures until they understand and interpret them properly. Which, by the way, beloved, means every Christian must never stop studying Scripture. Ever. Ever. I, there is no way any of us have arrived or will arrive. Never stop studying Scripture. My task here, a preacher's task, is not to spoon-feed us Bible knowledge, right? It's to remind us of what is here to be feasted upon it's to get us thinking, drive us into the text, not away from it. I'm not a replacement for the Bible. I'm not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. I'm not a replacement for your conscience. Every believer in here has the Holy Spirit. Seek Him to guide you in understanding the Scriptures properly all the time. All the time. Biblical illiteracy is a church killer. It's a church killer. What, what, if, what if we have teachers teaching things that we don't agree with as a church or that I don't agree with as the one charged with leading the church. Not that it's about Tony Romano, but it's about truth, right? What, what, what if people are talking and they don't know the scriptures and they're giving counsel and going back and forth? It's a church killer when we don't properly understand scriptures. We don't arrive then. We don't stop 
pressing in. It, it doesn't mean, well, then we always have to be ambiguous and foggy and you can't really know anything for sure. So you can't be dogmatic on any doctrine. Absolutely not. This doesn't mean that. It means we can't ever let our hearts get so hard that we won't listen. Because that means we've decided what is true on our own. And what I think is true has to be right and can't change. Beloved, there's not a more immature, dangerous place for a believer to be than to say, I don't even need to think about whether or not I'm right. I'm right. After his rebuke, he begins to correct their thinking in verse 25. That's the word for that we see there. So, in other words, here's one way that they're misunderstanding the Scriptures and the power of God in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice, first of all, when they arise from the dead. Not if. Immediately, Jesus affirms the resurrection. If the Sadducees embraced all Scripture as Scripture, they would understand people do rise from the dead. But in heaven, where we dwell with God, marriage does not exist anymore. The law doesn't enter heaven in this way. It ended and was fulfilled at the cross of Jesus Christ. There in heaven with God, we're like the angels in the sense that angels don't have any need to procreate. They don't have any need to partake in a shadow and type of the intimacy that exists between Christ and His church, since they already dwell without sin in the presence of God already. By the way, if you'll notice, Jesus is very cleverly affirming the existence of angels also, which they also deny. And angels, Jesus is saying, they don't marry. Jesus does not teach, beloved, Jesus does not teach that we become angels when we die. That is not biblical he doesn't say we become angels we and think about we say we have to be willing to understand how misconceptions infect our thinking because it's so often that you hear god got another angel god gained another angel when someone that we love dies and i don't want to hurt anyone's comfort i'm, I'm just telling you we don't downgrade to angels when we die That's not what happens to believers who die in the Lord. The Bible does not teach this anywhere. He teaches that in this way we become like them. How are we like them? That marriage will no longer be necessary. We won't be married because the intimacy the marriage covenant was created to display before the end has been fulfilled when the end comes. There's no more need for a shadow when the substance has come. I don't need to keep staring at a picture of Christy when I'm with Christy, right? That would be really weird. So here's the second way now in which they've misunderstood the Scriptures and so, in so doing, have denied the power of God. That's what doubting Scripture is. Look at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? There's the difference right there between synthetic arguments created out of thin air to discredit something by showing it to be absurd to our reasoning. The difference between that and taking the word of God objectively at face value, looking at the meaning of words, beloved. That's all Jesus is saying. We arrive at our doctrinal conclusions properly when scripture dictates the truth. Now, Everyone thinks their view is dictated by Scripture, right? They wouldn't hold to it if they didn't think that. What Jesus is revealing here, though, is that we won't stop studying the Scriptures to know the truth if we genuinely believe the power of God is what makes the truth the truth, right? He told them they didn't know the Scriptures. Now He opens the Scripture to them because that's what Jesus and only Jesus can do. He takes them to Exodus 3, 1 through 6, in verse 26. And again, it's extremely significant that to rebut their argument, Jesus doesn't go to the texts they don't believe are the truth. He fights them on their own ground. You believe in the Torah and you think the Torah doesn't teach resurrection. Let me show you where it does. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Scripture is not deficient. Their understanding of it is... 
He beats them on their own turf. He takes them to the passage about Moses and the burning bush where God introduced himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. He did not say he was the God of them when they were alive. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am because they're still alive in his presence. So Jesus simply told them from Scripture that God is therefore not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. You are greatly mistaken to prove there will be a future resurrection. All Jesus does is simply argue that God would not have spoken by uh, of himself in that way in the present tense if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't live beyond the grave. They, they just don't take the word of God seriously. They hadn't studied enough to see that subtle nuance. Their lives were and are the patriarchs in the hand of, of the God of the living. The God who apparently doesn't let death end our existence. Although the conflict here is with the Sadducees directly, and Jesus does stand in more technical theological agreement with the Pharisees over their view of the authority of all Scripture, right? This is still an indictment on all the religious leadership in Israel. They deny the power of God, first of all, by so often attributing the works of Jesus to the devil, right? And they reject Him as the prophesied Messiah because they refuse to understand the Scripture, They have an idea of what the Messiah would do, who the Messiah would be. Jesus doesn't fit their construct. Therefore, it doesn't matter if he meets these prophecies perfectly. It's not him, right? So they deny the scripture. They deny the power of God. Jesus revealed in his ministry, by the way, that scripture cannot be properly understood unless it's interpreted in light of Jesus, specifically as Redeemer and Savior and King. Jesus has already made this clear in John 5.39. He said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. We, we, We don't understand scripture when we know it. We understand scripture when we know what it means. Right, right. Beloved, the the Bible doesn't say what it says. It it means what it means. If we reject the power of God over us, over everything, in His Son, Jesus Christ, we'll never understand what Scripture means. Because Jesus is, as He has just made clear, or did make clear in John 5.39, Jesus is the means and the goal and the purpose and intent of all Scripture. So a person can know Scripture just fine, like they can know anything else. They can study it, memorize it, they can even quote it. But if we attempt to understand Scripture without Jesus as the means of interpretation, we're not only going to misunderstand the Scriptures, we're going to unwittingly end up rejecting the power of God and what He's able to do and to bring about. And we're going to trust ourselves for everything instead, eventually including our salvation. And we will lose our souls if we trust ourselves for our salvation. Every false religion in the world that in some way claims to worship the God of the Bible has their own way of interpreting the Bible. They just play word games and some of them even create their own additions to the Bible because if you let it stand as it is, their doctrine can't be true. So maybe God visited the Native Americans in the middle 1800s and gave them another Bible. And so now you have the Bible and the Book of Mormon and now you know everything. Those poor Christians before the 1800s. Right. So that's what we do. Well, this doesn't make sense. I'll I'll either say this part isn't the Bible or I'll write another one. Everybody uses the Bible to justify their doctrine. Everybody. We need divine rescue. Beloved, we need divine rescue. This is way more than a philosophical debate about the views of Jesus' opponents here. It's about the authority and reliability of Scripture. And it's about the extent of God's power. This is, 
This is addressing mankind's oldest question. If a man dies, what happens to him? When, when a person dies, what happens to them? Will he live again? Job 14, 14. Jesus answers without hesitation, without ambiguity. Yes, yes, we will be raised up and live forever. To miss this is not only to be wrong, it's to be quite wrong about the most important question in the universe. What is the truth and who is telling it to us? Often we ask the questions we do, again, not because we genuinely want to understand something, but really so we can deny it. That's what's creating our questions. So even our search for truth is hypocritical. You see this at the culmination of the death of Jesus with Pilate. Right? Don't you understand that I'm the one that has the power to let you live or die? And Jesus says, don't you understand that you wouldn't have an ounce of authority in this matter unless my father gave it to you. Right? This is the truth. What is truth? You think it matters to Pilate what truth is? No, he's playing a game here. Well, who can know the truth? How do I know that's true? If our search for truth is hypocritical, in other words, if it's not actually driven to know the truth, because if that's the case, then we'll let the truth do what it needs to do to us. If the search is hypocritical, we want to affirm what we think or want to believe We'll create scenarios, we'll create examples, we'll create absurd arguments so that the truth that we're being told is the truth can't possibly be correct. Atheists do this a lot. You know, the, um, have you ever heard, like in science class, I was asked this in 10th grade biology, but I get, it's, it's pretty pervasive. If God is all-powerful, can he build a rock that he can't lift? Uh, I guess there's no God. Right? Because, I mean, how, if you say it one way, then he's not all powerful. If, I mean, and so, there's no answer. Well, then there's no God. If you can't answer the question of whether or not God can build a rock that he can't lift, there can't be a God. How in the world is that determinative? How does that reasoning end the discussion? Right? It's, it's, the, the it's set up to deny the existence of God. That's the impulse that created the question. Therefore, the question isn't honest. It can't be valid. It doesn't need to be answered to affirm the truth. In this example here in Mark, the fact that multiple husbands existed and therefore it would create the scenario where we wouldn't know whose husband she was supposed to be, that means... That thing that might happen means there can't be a resurrection. But again, what makes that scenario the determining factor of whether or not there's a resurrection? It's a synthetic conundrum. Whether or not there's a resurrection is not dependent on whether or not we can understand how God could bring about what he said in extreme circumstances. If that's how we determine what is true, beloved, then we're in trouble. Whether or not there's a resurrection depends, first of all, on what God has said. And second of all, on the fact that God has the power to bring about what he has said. That's how we arrive at the truth. Even those of us who know, in some sense, the scriptures. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, you know neither the scriptures, which teach the resurrection... And prophesy of me, nor do you know the power of God. With God, all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible for him. No scenario will trump God's power. Our minds can't go somewhere God has not already been or created. Nothing that exists down here or could come about down here, no scenario we create or circumstance that arises or impossibility that appears down here determines the extent of God's power. No philosophical disagreement or conundrum we bring to the Scriptures is sufficient to undo what they proclaim. That's what's at stake when we determine where we find the truth. Who's saying it? Where is it coming from? Truth can only be known 
when we submit to the Word of God and therefore the power of God, until we believe the Scriptures and submit to the irrevocable power of the God they reveal in Jesus Christ, we can never know the truth. We can know facts. We can know truths. But the truth, what unites knowledge, what makes everything what it is, why everything exists, all of these things, the truth that philosophers have been debating about and until we submit to the authority of Scripture and the power of God, we can know nothing about the truth. We don't determine the meaning of Scripture. We discover it through prayer and study using the intended means God gave us to do that. The person and work of Jesus Christ by the guiding and illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. When we bump up against things we don't understand, we don't deny them. We don't doubt them. We pray to have our minds illuminated. Why? Because we know the power of God. We can't figure out how this can be reconciled. Right? How do we reconcile this doctrine with that doctrine? First of all, beloved, why do we need to reconcile friends? It's all the Word of God. Every word. That is what has to steer the ship. Not whether or not I can grasp what I'm seeing. Right? But whether or not I'm seeing it. Because if it's there, it's the truth. God does not lie. He cannot deny Himself. That tells me all I need to know when I'm struggling to understand something. As the source and substance of all truth, we don't demand that Jesus fits our understanding. We realize that we have to be shaped into His. We don't deny things in the Bible when they disagree with what we already think. That assumes not even God knows the truth. Do we understand that? If we approach truth... By believing it's this thing that exists out there, and the goal is to find it and be conformed to it, when we doubt God, we're saying the same thing about Him. He, he has to conform to this truth that's out there, or He's not telling the truth, He's not the truth. Right? That, that's why we come up with phrases called, live your truth, live your truth. Right? You hear that all the time now. Well, you just gotta live your truth. Okay. What if my truth is that if you are between 50 and 60 years of age, you are worthless to society and you should be killed? Do I get to live that truth? No, not that. Why not? Why not? What if I'm a serial killer? What if that's my truth, my identity, who I want to be? Right? You got you to be yourself. What if yourself is horrible? Where does it stop? If you build things on subjectivity... The house will never stand. Because, do you know, do you know what a map is? Who in here knows what a map is? No, 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 I'm sorry, that was dumb. Not a, not a, I mean the, uh, the acronym, map. It's new. You know what it means? Minor attracted persons. We call that a pedophile. But now, hey, listen, we've been saying for years that love is love and and you can't be telling people who they can love. So finally, pedophiles, this is fun to talk about, started saying, you know what? What about, I love who I want to love. So now you have college professors. I can show you the video on Twitter. We need to stop demonizing pedophilia. They're minor attracted persons. That's who they're attracted to. Yep, that's where you go when you don't build on the rock and you build on the shifting sand of human understanding and reasoning. And you know who will suffer the most? Women and children. Right? It, it never fails. Are you, I mean, that's where we are. That's where we are. Minor attracted persons. Beloved, if we take that same line of thinking into the Bible, we won't arrive at the truth. If it's just, well... If it sounds good to me, if it makes sense to me, look, let's be honest, nothing in this book makes sense to me, really. Right? We have to be bent by it, shaped by it. If we're doing the bending and shaping, we end up at minor attracted persons. You say, well, that's an extreme example. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it never stops. That's where we are now. After hundreds of years of it being horribly looked down on, even in the world. I'm off track, but, but we have to understand there's a way that we arrive at what is true. And it starts with the power of God who is revealed to us in the Scripture. Right? I'm not against sins like that because I don't like them, which I don't. I'm against them because God says these things are vile and an abomination and he won't permit them. And I, let's say I think, well, I think we should accept everybody. And, but what does God say? And we aren't talking about you, you, we can't hold out the gospel to people that struggle with sins like this and, and that we don't proclaim the truth in them or that they're beyond salvation. Of course they're not beyond salvation. But our thinking has to be shaped by Scripture. How I feel is irrelevant. You say, well, that, I don't get to be who I want to be then. God has no respect. No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. So in that, God is no respecter of persons. He's not looking at you going, oh man, I should listen to them. That's pretty valid. I, I should, re-. no. He made us. Moms and dads, again, come back to this. At, if, if you're trying to discuss a rule with your kid and they're arguing with you, I do this a lot in my house. We have, what, what do you say eventually when you get tired of it? Why? Why? Because I said so. Right? Or a lot of times, what, what I, I, if I hear one of them going, I'll say, why do you think this is a discussion? Right? This, that's not what's happening here. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm the tough guy in my house. It's, it's teenage girls. Right? It's not a tough thing. I'm saying, we don't argue with mom and dad here. That's not what we're doing here. Right? The day will come when, when, you know, we can, but not now, right? So we claim this for ourselves. We, we make ourselves the arbiters of truth in a situation which we can as parents is not wrong unless we're wrong in it by saying, no, 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 this is true simply because I'm telling you it's true. And because it's me, you need to accept it. Be careful not to deny that right to the one who made us as parents. Right? We don't think we're being unloving when we say that. We don't think we're hurting them and crushing their individuality and all this stuff. We're just, we're probably trying to protect them. No, you can't go to that party. You can't ride home with an intoxicated friend. But I want to. I don't care. Right? You're, you're, it's not happening. Right? It, that's, that's very normal because we understand there are some situations where truth trumps feelings and opinions and impressions and desires. And beloved, if that's true, how true is it for God? We must be shaped by Him, beloved. Shaped by Him. He lays claim to every thought, every conclusion, every argument. There are so many things that we can't really begin to exhaust or understand in Scripture. There's many things that we can. Most of it we can't exhaust but we know, we need to know God is going to work them out. Right? And, and how? And I'll, I'll end with this. There is a passage in Colossians 1 that is, is, is if, if we can even make these uh, categories. Okay, let, let, let me read it. Because I think this is really important. But what I think is important, does it determine truth? It's just a great text. Okay? Listen to what God says of His Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile Himself to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. How can it be that God makes me right with God by His Son's blood and His Son's righteousness? I don't need to know how it can be. It's how it is. And praise God that's how it is. Because there's no other way. That's not the exciting part. If indeed, or he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Why did I miss this verse? The one I'm trying to read. Yes, verse 19. I read over it because I was excited. Let me say this and then we'll we'll close. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you know what we just read? How will all these questions be answered? How will I ever understand what truth is? How will I ever know why this, why that, how this, how that? God answers every question at the cross. That is the place where God reconciles everything to himself. Nothing will be left out there unexplained. Nothing will be left out there unfair. Everything is reconciled at the place where God in human flesh offered up his sinless, obedient life as a sufficient sacrifice for all the sins of all the people that will believe in him once and for all. And then to vindicate his sacrifice, his offering, to prove that Jesus is who he said he was and his death would accomplish what he said it would, God raised him from the dead. He has now ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the one place in the universe of power and authority. And it is from there he reigns, is bringing all his enemies under his feet, including every lofty argument raised up against him, every silly scenario, every rebellion. He's reconciling it all, all through the cross, all through that place where the innocent died for the guilty. The ultimate miscarriage of justice is where God will make all truth whole. You must know Him. Beloved, we believe the Scriptures because they are there and they are created and written by the power of God. We submit to Him or we know nothing of the truth. Would you stand? 